Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. Welcome to today's episode of the Real View Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Wiley. Joining me is my co-host, Carrie Arblaster. And with us today are our legal ladies of Ohio Realtors, Peg Rittenauer and Lori Garland. Ladies, we are so happy to have you with us today. Everybody loves you guys. This is going to be such a great episode. We are honored to have you as our special guests of the day. Thank you guys for being here. Thank Thank you for having us. All right, ladies, as you know, we begin each podcast episode with our signature question. The podcast is called The Real View, and so we like to ask our guests, what is the best view that they have had? So I don't know who wants to start, but we would like to hear from you about the best view you've had. Lori, why don't you go ahead first? Okay, I'll start. Well, that's a tough question. I feel like I should say some of my best views. I love sunsets. So maybe one of the beautiful sunsets I've seen on my travels, but I'm actually going to say my best view is the birth of my children. The first time I saw their cute little faces. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah, sentimental. (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) All right, Peg, we've asked you this before because you've been on before. So you got something new for us? I do. I do. My last one involved one of my children, but uh, today I think I'm going to pick the California coast driving down Big Sur. I just think that is the most spectacular drive and I I love the views from there and uh, even going north in the opposite direction, going up to the Oregon and and Washington coastline. I, I just think that coastline along the Pacific is just fabulous. Hard to beat. That's great. It's been fun during COVID to ask these questions because it like momentarily transports you somewhere else. Of course, none of us have been able to travel. So we haven't been able to collect new views this past year. But thank you for sharing that. Before we get started with today's topic, I wanted to take just a second for you two to share with our listeners, you know, who you are. You both have been with Ohio Realtors for a long time. You both are experts in your field. And before you start, you know, doling out advice and sharing with both practitioners and consumers, you know, some good tips for today's market, if you could just take a moment to share with our listeners a bit about your background. So Peg, we'll go ahead and start with you. Hey, thanks, Carrie. Well, again, my name is Peg Rittenauer. I have been with Ohio Realtors for 31 years. I came over from the Division of Real Estate where I was legal counsel and was superintendent for four years. And my main role at Ohio Realtors is handling the legal hotline along with Lori and fielding questions from brokers and managers about transactions and all kinds of legal issues, fair housing, disclosure questions, real estate settlement procedures act, antitrust, it kind of runs the full gamut. And I also help with our legal issues program and staff our legal action committee, which decides whether or not we will get involved in litigation on behalf of one of our members or a private property rights issue. I'll let Lori talk about this a little bit, but we also work very closely with our public policy group. So Lori, I'll let you fill in the blanks on what we do. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Peg. So yeah, Peg and I have worked together for a long time because I've been with Ohio Realtors 30 years. 
and work with Peg at the Division of Real Estate. So we've worked together for a long, long time, and it's been a great experience. But what I do for Ohio Realtors is, of course, staff the legal hotline with Peg. And, you know, that is just a great, gives us great perspective on what the issues are for our members and buyers and sellers. So um, it kind of really helps us do our job in meeting the needs of our members and um, knowing the issues that they're facing on a day-to-day basis. Besides the legal hotline, I also am staff liaison to the property management forum. So um, I really get into property management issues as well, which there are many now with eviction moratoriums and and all of that that's going on right now. So predominantly, that's what I do. Peg and I work together um, on a lot of the issues and and a lot, like Peg said, too, on public policy issues and reviewing bills and and helping in that area as well. That gives a little bit of background on us. Yeah. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Thank you. What an asset and a resource for our members at Ohio Realtors. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the real estate market. It's kind of crazy, 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 hot, hot, hot. Although we've had a continuing issue with low inventory, and that was something that was here before COVID. It's been here during COVID. It's likely to remain after. And so today we want to hear from you guys. We know you've written several white papers. You've been incredibly engaged offering fantastic advice to members and how best to proceed through this market. So I'm just going to turn it over to you guys and let's get started. Okay, I'll kick it off. Carrie, you're absolutely right. You know, there's this low inventory of properties, which is, you know, just fueling this demand that buyers have for the limited number of properties that are available. And of course, contributing to that, you know, desire for buyers to find that perfect house for them is the fact that the interest rates have been so low. So it's kind of a perfect storm. You know, we have all these buyers that want to buy houses, but unfortunately not enough houses available for all of those buyers. So they're competing against one another. And so what Lori and I are seeing when we talk to our members on the legal hotline and what probably people have seen reported in their local news media has been, you know, this situation where buyers are really having to make quick decisions when a property becomes available as to whether or not they want to make an offer on that property. Because People are seeing five, six, seven, eight, twenty offers on their property when it goes on the market in a very short period of time. So buyers really feel like they have to act quickly. And I think one of the things that's important is for real estate agents and brokers to really try to prepare their buyers and their sellers for the market that they're experiencing, where we're having all of these multiple offers. And I think counseling is probably the most important thing for them to do is before they even you know, take a buyer out to look at properties or put that for sale sign in a seller's yard is to kind of give them a picture of what the market looks like and how quickly things might move with respect to a seller receiving offers or for a buyer having to make a decision to try to determine whether or not they want to go ahead and make an offer on this property. And if they do, what that negotiation process is going to look like. I think a lot of buyers have some misunderstandings about that process and and maybe even sellers as well. And And some of that is coming from talking with friends and neighbors. And some of it is from watching, you know, TV shows, you know, on HGTV or whatever channel you watch, where I think they're getting some maybe some misunderstandings about how the process works. So I think the first thing for for a real estate agent to do with their buyer and their seller is to make sure that they understand the process. And one of the first things that I think is important, especially for buyers to understand is, you know, when they make that offer to purchase, if it gets accepted by the seller, then they have a a binding purchase contract. 
and there's no kind of second guessing that can happen. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I think some buyers might think that they have a, a three-day cooling off period or a right to to get out of the contract for a short period of time. And that's not true. And I, so I think that's something that's important for buyers and sellers to understand and, and for agents to discuss with them is really make sure that's a house you want before you make that offer to purchase. I think they also have to understand that, you know, while the market's very fast paced right now and offers and counter offers can be done, you know, maybe via text or email, that it's not a legally binding contract until it's in writing and it's signed by both parties. So it's really best not to negotiate by text message because that's not going to provide the written signature of both the buyer and seller. And unfortunately, a lot of times there's verbal acceptances and buyers get all excited thinking they have a contract or a seller thinks the buyer has accepted their counteroffer and it's not in writing. And, and then that party does change their mind, which they would have the right to do if everything's not signed, sealed and delivered. So I think those are some basics that should be gone over first. And then I think, you know, they got to get into the how the multiple offer process is handled and what the agent's duties are. And Lori, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that, about presenting all offers. And Yeah, Peg, I think that's very good advice, you know, that buyers have to really know, first of all, be very certain that they're happy with the terms before they sign that document. Um, I think that's very important. And, you know, like we said in the beginning, now with the shortage of inventory, and the buyers so motivated to get a property in contract now because of the low interest rates, we are hearing a lot about multiple offers. And I'm not just talking about two or three. We have heard scenarios where there are 40 offers on a property. It's amazing. And I think, you know, a few years ago, we would have thought that would never happen, but it is happening now. And I think educating the buyer and seller a little bit on that process and the issues that can come up with the multiple offer situation is very important. So for example, you know, I think some buyers are, mis well, they misunderstand as far as if I get my offer in first, that seller definitely has to deal with my offer before they can consider any other offer. And that is not correct. I mean, if let's say it is a multiple offer situation, if you're the seller, you're going to want to see all of those offers before you make a decision on what you want to do with those offers. So I think a lot of buyers think, well, if I get it in first, then they have to deal with me first before they can look at the next offer. And that's just not the case. So the seller will definitely consider all of those offers and agents have a duty to present all offers to their seller. The seller should consider it, and then it's up to the seller. It's really the seller's decision what to do with those offers. They may get 15 or 20 offers and reject all of them. And they have the ability to do that. They may want to accept one right off the bat, done deal. I don't want to do this negotiating. I'm just going to go with one of them. They might decide that they want to counter just one of those offers. You know, that's another, I think, misconception of buyers. They feel that, you know, if one buyer is given the opportunity to raise their price, then all buyers should be given that opportunity. And that's not the case. It's going to be completely up to a seller. Probably most sellers feel it's in their best interest to throw that out there to all buyers saying, hey, make your highest and best, but it's ultimately up to the seller. And there are pros and cons to throw that out there and say, hey, make your, your you know, you're in a multiple offer situation, make your best offer. That may lose some buyers because they don't want to get into a battle over price or terms and, and they may walk. So, you know, it's all a gamble. It's all kind of up to the seller, how they feel uh, they want to handle it and what is in their best interest. And those are the some of the concerns. And Peg, you might have other issues that you feel can come up too in that negotiating process. 
Yeah, I think, Lori, you're, you're exactly right. These buyers think that the seller, you know, has to counter back or has to give them a chance to raise their offer. And, and of course, that's not true. The seller really, to a large extent, is, is in the driver's seat. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of buyers question um, is, well, will I know that there are other offers? And again, that's going to be something that is the seller's decision as to whether or not he wants to let buyers know, hey, I've received five offers you know, make your highest and best. And, you know, the seller may not want to do that. He might think, you know, no, I I don't feel any need to tell them that. I'm just going to go ahead and accept an offer. And those buyers are upset later because they think they should have been told they were competing against somebody else. One thing that I think is interesting is, and I know it's a very common practice, you know, again, these buyers are making the biggest decision of their life and hopefully they're taking it seriously and they're trying to give it the time that it deserves to, you know, really think it through and make sure it's the right house. So, I've seen this scenario, and I'm sure you have, Lori, as well, heard this, where, you know, a buyer will go out and look at, they might have 10 appointments in a day, you know, if there are 10 houses to show them, um, and they'll look at those, and they might like the first house they see, but they want to see what else is on the market. So they may instruct their agent to ask the listing agent to let them know if another offer comes in. So the buyer's agent will say to the listing agent, hey, you know, my buyer really likes the house. They have some other appointments today or you know, they want to think about it overnight, but please let us know if you get another offer. And, you know, the listing agent from that standpoint really can't promise that unless their seller has authorized them to make that disclosure. So they really should respond, you know, I'm not sure I can do that. I'll have to check with my seller. And if he authorizes me to notify you if we receive another offer, then I will be happy to do that. It's something you could talk with your seller about up front at the time of listing. Don't you agree, Lori, that they should Right when you're listing the property, discuss with your seller, we might get multiple offers. Do you want that to be disclosed to all buyers? Here's the positive that might get them to raise their offers if they realize they're not the only game in town. But on the other hand, you know, Lori, I think you touched on this. You know, there are those buyers who are just frazzled. They're emotionally drained from the process of going through so many negotiations and losing houses. And they may say, you know what? I don't want to be in a bidding war. I don't want to do that again. And so what they could do is you could notify them all that they're in a multiple offer situation and one or more of those buyers could say, nope, not for me. I'm going to withdraw my offer. Right. You've talked a lot about sellers and agents working with sellers who are going to receive multiple offers. But I know on the buyer's side, buyers also have a whole kind of, you know, smorgasbord of options that they can do to make their offer more palatable or stand out above other potential buyers. Can you guys maybe talk a little bit about some of the things you've seen in this incredibly tight market from buyers? Yeah, Carrie, there are a lot of different strategies that buyers can use maybe to make their offer more appealing. You know, price is definitely one factor, you know, and that that is a very important factor to a seller. But, you know, it's just one factor. It's not maybe the determining factor for every single seller. So it may be the closing date. It may be they need more time, maybe because they're building a home and, you know, they want a situation where the buyer will will actually close and allow them to stay in the property. So, I mean, there are a lot of factors that can play in. But what some buyers are doing, I give a couple examples of what buyers are doing to make their offers maybe look better is saying no inspection. Now, you know, our members and agents should always recommend that their buyer have a home inspection done. But some buyers now are waiving the inspection. You know, they're trying to do whatever it takes to get their offer accepted. And so a lot of times, because a lot of times it's the inspection contingency that blow up a contract. 
you know, they do an inspection and they find some problems and they ask the seller to make those repairs and they can't agree on how to remedy that inspection provision. And so that the contract doesn't close. So a lot of, or some buyers are thinking, well, I'll have an advantage if I'm going to waive the inspection contingency and just buy the home. Or sometimes what they'll do is say, I want to have an inspection. However, I won't ask the seller to make any repairs. Maybe I want the right to terminate it if I'm not happy with the condition of the property, but I won't ask the seller to make any repairs. So that's, you know, that's one thing dealing with the inspection peg. You might have other areas that, you know, we've heard about as far as buyers and what they're trying to do to get their offer accepted. I do want to stress, and I know, Lori, you mentioned this, you know, your job as a, as a, as a real estate agent or a broker is to make sure that you protect your buyer client. And that is why you absolutely want to stress the importance of having an inspection and knowing what you're buying, because the last thing a buyer needs after they just put most of their savings into their down payment is to now buy the house and, you know, six months later, have a large repair bill for something that that goes wrong. So I can't stress that enough. And that should be documented in writing by the agent that they recommended that the buyer have an inspection and that that be included in the contract. You want to document that you gave them that advice and it's their decision if they want to uh, waive it. That's so crazy. I'm like, that That gives me anxiety. I'm like, oh my gosh, like you don't, like you said, you don't know what could happen down the road. You know what I mean? I'm like, that to me is like so crazy, but it's because, you know, these are the conditions that we're living in and, you know, this is what it's taking to get a home these days. Yeah, it, it is very stressful for buyers. It's very stressful, especially for first time buyers who haven't been through the process before. But the other thing that, that Lori and I are seeing a lot, and it's it's not really that new, it's been around for a while, but it's just being much more commonly used now is what's called an escalation clause. And your real estate agent might suggest this, you know, a real estate agent might suggest this to a buyer. I don't think buyers typically come up with this on their own. But what an escalation clause is, you put your offer offering price in the contract, let's say it's it's 300000 So you'll you know, a buyer will make an offer of 300000 but then they'll indicate that they would go up, let's say, $2,000 over the next highest price. So they, they're they really trying to already, you know, outbid yeah. anybody else that might have a higher offer than they would. And, and that's a great strategy, but that has to really be a well-written agreement. There should be an addendum. You're hopefully a lot of the boards have uh, these escalation clause addendums because, you know, the buyer that wants to use that, I'm sure there's a ceiling how far they're willing to go. And so they want to put a cap on that. It'll be $3,000 and I'll go $2,000 over the next highest offer with a cap at, you know, 310. So that has to be written. And then you have to think, is that going to be a net price? Is that less closing costs that might be in their concession? So there's all kinds of complications and, you know, it, it can be done. But I think the thing that's important, and that's kind of on the buyer side, but for you as a seller, if you receive an offer with an escalation clause, you know, you don't have to go along with that. And and sometimes what we're seeing is sellers who are receiving three or four offers and they all have escalation clauses. Hey, Allison, have you signed up for this Ohio Realtors Legislative Week? Yeah, Carrie, I did. Well, I was on the website the other day because I'm thinking of signing up too, but I, I didn't quite understand exactly what was being offered. Do you know? Yeah, we have so much going on. You can get an hour of CE credit, hear from Secretary of State Frank LaRose, hear from the Jobs Ohio CEO, JP Nassif, and hear from your state political party leaders and legislators. That sounds fantastic. I think I'm gonna go ahead and register. 
Yeah, make sure to register before April 22nd. That's our deadline. You can go to ohiorealtors.org for more information and to find the registration link. That's great. I'm doing it today. So what is that? I mean, how does that work then? Practically speaking, Peg, does it just automatically max everybody out? I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy. I know. I'm just thinking like they're upping. Everybody's just one upping each other, one upping each other. I'm like the price I'm sure could get like out of control in that case. Yeah, it could, but you, hopefully they all have those caps on there, but it does become extremely complicated to figure that out. And so, you know, one approach to avoid all that complication a seller could do if they do get offers with more than one escalation clause is, you know, they can just go back and say, hey, everybody submit your highest and best with no escalation clauses. You know, we don't want to play that game. It's too confusing. There's too much room for people to interpret how that should work when you get two or three ones with escalation clauses. Just like you said, oh my gosh, it makes your head spin. I don't know, Lori, do you have anything you want to add about that with the escalation clauses? The thing with escalation clauses, again, first of all, we're just talking about price and that's only one factor that the seller is going to consider and might not be the most important factor. The second issue too, when a buyer uses an escalation clause and they put a maximum amount in there, which they absolutely should, so it's not going higher than they ever imagined that they would be paying for a property, it really is showing their hand. So let's say they make an offer at 450, but they're willing to go up to 500. Well, now the seller knows that. And what's to stop the seller from just maybe that escalation clause hasn't been triggered that high up to that 500,000 or whatever, but they know a buyer indicated they would go there. So let's say the seller is just going to counter back at 500,000 or maybe even more. So it's really showing the buyer's hand. It can, I think, work against them, let alone that if you get multiple offers with escalation clauses, it can become very confusing. So I think a lot of times the sellers are just totally ignoring them and either countering back um, at whatever they want to counter back. And I think that's a perfectly fine strategy to follow. So there's another tool instrument that's been being used. And I'm not sure if these really existed before the market was this tight or if they've always been around or if they're just really being used a lot right now. But those are the love letters, right, that buyers write and put together for the seller to try to convince them, persuade them, you know, outside of price point and maybe some other technical issues that, you know, this home is meant for their family, Can you guys talk a little bit about these love letters and how they have been being used over the past several months? Yeah, and I'd love to hear too, are these strategies that we're witnessing, are these new just because the market is so crazy? Or I mean, have some of these things been around for a while, but maybe we're just not talking about it because they've never been so important or maybe so common as they are now? Well, with the inspections, waiving the inspection, I think that's more of a recent phenomenon. I don't think that was very popular before. It's just now the sellers are totally in the driver's seat. So I think that's why that one's becoming popular. Escalation clauses, you know, we've, Lori, I think we've been getting calls about that for the last eight, 10 years. So that's not necessarily new. They're just much more common now, much, much more common. Now, the love letters, I think maybe in the past, you know, buyers have wanted to you know, submit something to the seller saying, you know, why this house is so special and why they, you know, want this house so badly, but they had never been used to the extent they are now. And so just for those out there uh, to make sure everybody understands, I think Carrie did a good job of explaining it, but, but what's being referred to as a love letter is this letter that the buyer puts together to accompany their offer that says, oh, you know, we love your house. It's, 
just uh, exactly what we were looking for. You know, it's in the neighborhood we wanted. We think this is a great family neighborhood. We could see raising our children there. They might say it's close to our church or synagogue or mosque, or they could get into all kinds of things about themselves. But they usually try to tug on the heartstrings of the seller because especially if the seller has several offers, you know, and it's the house they, you know, have lived in for a long time, they maybe there would be some emotional component to seeing somebody they feel comfortable with in their house or that they could see living in their house. It's, you know, it's their home. It's where they raise their family, perhaps. So those letters have, have been around, but again, I think they're much more common. And, and the main concern with them right now is that the buyer might be communicating in a subtle or not so subtle way important facts about them that might, you know, bleed into some issues regarding fair housing and whether or not they're members of a protected class. So for example, the minute they start saying, oh, uh, I could see, you know, our family of five and our three beautiful little children, you know, running down the steps on Christmas morning, they're communicating, A, we fall under the protected class of families with children, and B, you know, we're Christian because we're running down the steps on Christmas morning. And so, May a seller be more inclined because maybe they think, oh, they're just like me. Wow. That is fascinating. That's so interesting. And they might be giving them a preference, which might be a violation of the fair housing laws, or they may indicate something that might trigger the seller to intentionally or maybe not even intentionally just, you know, be alleged to have been a violation. Oh, I happened to mention that this was near my synagogue and you refused my offer because you have a bias against Jewish people. And that's why you didn't accept my offer. And where they're going to think that is if they see reported later that the property was sold for less money than their offer, they're going to say, wait a minute, you you rejected my offer. It was higher. It must be because you figured out I was Jewish. So you know, is that always going to be a fair housing violation? Not necessarily, but it's going to be one of those things that could trigger that type of allegation. Have you guys received any calls or concerns about people coming back and reporting post sale of a property or complaining in a scenario like you just laid out? You know, I have heard, Carrie, the allegation that they feel that, you know, they were discriminated against based upon, you know, one of the protected classes. And it can come into an issue, too. A lot of the love letters actually have pictures of the family, maybe, or the buyer and seller who want to buy that property. And right there, that tells a lot about someone by looking at the picture. So there have been at least, I've heard claims that someone is alleging that they were discriminated against because the seller knew that, you know, they were a certain race or a certain religion or something like that. And a lot of times, like Peg said, it's because they find out maybe that the house sold for less than what their offer was. And so they think it was a discriminatory situation. So really what's in the Probably because here, here, who are we talking about potentially could be alleged that they have discriminated is the seller. So, you know, some sellers are, are just not accepting love letters at all. And, you know, agents, a lot of agents are recommending that because of the potential, because it could be where the seller didn't base their decision on any protected class factors at all. It's just for whatever reason, maybe it was the closing date or possession date that was really made that offer attractive. But because of the potential allegation of fair housing, it probably is best for sellers not to receive those love letters. And they can definitely disclose that, that they will not accept the love letter. They can let the listing agent know that. 
and kind of put that issue to bed right off the bat. What is the liability for a real estate agent if, if uh, you know, a potential buyer feels that they were discriminated against based off of who goes on to purchase the property after they have submitted an offer? Is there any potential liability for the agent? Well, I mean, that can always be alleged, but I think the person that's really at risk, as Lori said, is the seller because they're the ones that made the decision as to which offer to accept. You know, perhaps maybe the seller could claim that their agent should have told them not to accept that letter, you know, so that they wouldn't have that exposure. But I think it's really more the seller. But, you know, your your fiduciary duty as a, as a listing agent is to protect your seller and to tell your seller, you know, hey, this might put you in some area of risk here by accepting these types of letters and to not not accept them. So I think that's what you want to do. You know, we're always trying to make sure that you have a clean, smooth transaction and you don't want any post-closing issues to be raised. And so I think it's just, again, one of those things that's important for a listing agent to discuss with their seller at the time of listing, you know, are we going to disclose there's multiple offers? You may get a lot of offers at once, you know, and, and you might get these letters with them. And here's why I think it might be a good idea not to accept these letters. I think a lot of agents are even putting that in the MLS in the remarks section. Lori, do you agree with that? It's mostly the listing agent that's, or excuse me, the seller that's at risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe it's the seller that's most at risk. And like you said, the listing agent is, is, should do everything to protect, to uh, protect the seller and, and recommending to you that they not consider love letters, I think is a good idea. Absolutely yeah. a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I think the place where the agent maybe could become involved, and this is going to be hard to prove is, you know, if the seller sees the love letter and going over all the offers says, well, you know, geez, you know, I didn't realize these people were African-American or Hispanic or whatever. And, you know, or say, you know, oh, I see this couple, they don't have kids. You know, and I just really want this to go to a family that has children. I or I see they're a uh, you know a gay couple. I, I'm not comfortable with that. How the agent responds to that could be the problem. But those are such private conversations that can you know those are hard to establish and prove. So much to keep straight and to you know make sure you're you're saying in those legal you know rights in this crazy market. I don't know. I. It has to be so hard to be a realtor right now um, on both ends, whether you're buying or or selling. But so much great stuff. This is this has been so fascinating. And and I don't know if you guys have heard of the new um, show that just came out on Netflix. It's called Marriage or Mortgage. It's and I know I know we all you know get roll our eyes at the uh, real estate TV shows, but they've had a few couples on there that are dealing with exactly what you've talked about. There was one couple who decided you know they they have to choose between if they want a mortgage or or a wedding, and the couple had decided that they want a wedding, but they had already put in an offer on this house, and their offer got accepted. So the realtor came back and said, "Hey, like." you guys offered this, like, sorry, you're buying a house now. You know what I mean? And, and you mentioned on that earlier that, yeah, if, if you put in an offer, like you are, you know, and it gets accepted, you're, it's you're real. buying that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then there, there was another um, couple that wrote a letter and the realtor mentioned like the sellers loved your letter. And I think that helped influence it. So, I mean, just a perfect example, you know, in, in just a couple episodes of a stupid Netflix TV show, you know what I mean? That these are real things things that are happening and, and that our realtors are dealing with on an everyday basis. And it's making my head spin. I'm like, oh my gosh, how it just has to be so hard to be, <laughs> to keep up with all of this and keep it all straight in such a crazy market. 
Yeah, it, it is. It is. And I, I, I feel like the agents, every single agent or broker that I talk to, and I'm sure Lori hears the same thing, says they've never seen a market like this. It's so unusual. But the, the I guess one other point that I want to make is that, you know, these buyers are making offers. And of course, the seller doesn't have to accept a full price offer. A lot of buyers think that they don't. And, and people are making offers for more than list price and they are getting or they're getting a counter for more than list price. And that's all all fine. But the bottom line is that I would say most transactions include a financing component. And part of financing is that the lender is going to uh, send out an appraiser to um, assess what they believe is the value of the property before that lender agrees to provide funding for that purchase. And so, you know, you can, you know, we're seeing these transactions where the, the property selling for $40,000 over list price. But at the end of the day, you may have a situation where the property doesn't appraise for that. And then that's going to impact the buyer's financing. And so I think that's something important also for the parties to understand. And I've even heard from, you know, listing agents, listing brokers, that they'll get these offers that are over list price, but sometimes the seller won't accept them because they know that it's probably not going to appraise for that. And they're going to have spent, you know, three or four weeks with this buyer only to have that deal die. And they'd rather go with somebody who's making a more reasonable offer that they think has more likelihood to actually close. Lori, are, are you seeing that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the strategies some buyers are using because so many homes now are selling over list price and there are issues then with getting the appraisal that they're actually saying that they will pay so much over the appraised value. And, you know, you can do that. I have talked to... Uh, agents though, where it's not really clear the intention of the parties as far as what the purchase price is going to be. So they may offer one price and then in another section say, and the buyer's willing to go 5,000 over appraisal. So does that mean that price or 5,000 over appraisal, whichever is lower? And it's, it's sometimes not clear. And so I would really caution buyers and sellers both so that when you get into that situation and they're debating, okay, what is the actual purchase price? That be very clear in the contract of what that price will be if the property doesn't appraise. You know, a lot of contracts have, if it doesn't appraise, the, the buyer can get out of the contract. But, you know, then they write in those other issues that can muddy the water and really cause confusion as to what the price is and what the rights of the buyer and seller are in those situations. And typically in those situations, that price over the appraised value, that buyer is bringing cash to the table, right? I mean, this is Absolutely. not able to be Absolutely. financed because the bank is not going to finance above and beyond what the asset is worth. So these right. are people who are able to bring cash to the table. Absolutely. Yeah, but Lori is absolutely right. I, I just had a, a call yesterday on the hotline where that was kind of the issue. The buyer had written in that they'd be willing to spend, pay $10,000 over the appraised price. But even with that, that meant that the seller was going to be selling their property for $25,000 and what the purchase price was in the contract. And the seller was like, I'm not doing that. And there was the way it was written, it didn't say the seller was required to do that. And so it, it causes a lot of problems. And so agents, you know, I know you're, you're trying to, you know, anticipate there being a low appraisal by writing these in the contract. But unfortunately, they're in some cases, they're not being written in a very clear manner and it's causing some problems. So I would absolutely, for the agents in the audience today, I would definitely talk with your broker about this. This is something you might want to have your local attorney help you with, the drafting and the language and how that should be worded so that there is that 
you know, necessary clarity about what is the price going to be in this situation of a low appraisal. Wow. So much at play. So many moving pieces and parts and buying and selling homes these days. A lot to keep in mind. It's it's a rough market, but I mean, it sounds like it's going to stick around and be this way for a while until we can get some more homes for sale. So amazing advice, you guys, as always. Um, so fascinating to learn about all that goes into buying and selling a home these days. So Peg, Lori, thank you both for being with me today. Carrie, thank you uh, for co-hosting with me, you guys. This was this was a great episode. I've learned so much, and I know our listeners are going to enjoy this one. So thank you, ladies, both. Or, and actually, thank you, all three of you ladies, uh, for joining me today. And um, we will talk to you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Bye. Carrie. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time. This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.